Thank you. <laughs> Excited to be here. It's great to have you, man. Uh, well, actually, come on, Chara to Heba Sabra, who uh, introduced us to each other. Indeed. It was supposed to be a business meeting, and uh, five minutes into this uh, session that we had, because <clears throat> you worked at McKinsey, I worked at consulting, so there was some business collaboration. We'll talk about that later in the episode. Uh, it was one of the most therapeutic hours I've had, and uh, I did not know that you are a coach or that you're actually focusing on personal growth, yeah. uh, healing, coaching, all that stuff. And I'm somebody who's very skeptical about that stuff. So I've been very excited to get you on the show so we can talk about all these things, consulting for sure, just because we both worked in, you worked Absolutely. at McKinsey for 10 years. <clears throat> I worked for Kearney. Um, I run a company um, today in the gig economy and consulting. But um, personal growth, how to have a fulfilling life, how to do things in a purposeful way are all the things that I remember we spoke about and I loved your perspective on it. Coaching as well, um, and how much it goes hand in hand with all these things and different modalities of coaching, um, healing, therapy, even coaching has mental coaching, performance coaching, leadership coaching. It's hard to even know what kind of modality applies in which case. So very excited to hear your perspectives on all of these things. So let's start with at which point in your, at which point in your career and in your life did you decide you're going to focus on growth and coaching? Yeah. What was the stimulus for it? And where are you in your journey at this point? Yeah, yeah. Um, so look, I, um, uh, I joined consulting in 2008, right? So it's been what, 15 years since I got into consulting and from the minute I got into consulting, I think very early on, I got much less excited about the Excel files and the an analytics side of consulting and the strategy side and much more excited about the people side of consulting, building relationships, figuring out what makes people tick. Um, is something that's always been a draw for me. Um, and so I ended up in my journey at, uh, at McKinsey and in consulting, focusing a lot on people-related topics. Mm. How do we build capabilities? How do we uh, transform cultures or transform organizations? How do we build leaders and leadership, not just for our clients, but also internally uh, within McKinsey, right? You know, from all the consulting companies, they have quite big... Um, leadership development efforts for their own people. In fact, that's, there's a reason why consulting alumni are highly valued in many aspects of the business world, right? It's because they get, they get, they become the subject of intense and very um, intentional development. Um, so from very early on, I also got involved in the training and development of my fellow consultants. Um, and tying it back to an earlier part of my life, right? So I had, a, I had a childhood that enabled me to be, let's say, on both sides of the social sea uh, in school, right? I was a fat kid growing up. So <laughs> I was, I don't want to say bullied, but I was definitely not one of the popular kids. Let's put it that way, right? Right. And then at some point in, um, in my last year of school, I went on a huge diet, lost a lot of weight, suddenly uh, found it a lot easier to connect with people, um, but always kept with me the memory of like the pain and the suffering I went through when I didn't feel that, mm. right? And it gave me a lot of 
ability to put myself in somebody else's shoes because I found myself in many different shoes mm-hmm. throughout my life. And I think um, throughout college, throughout working and consulting, I'd always gone through, and I, and I don't mean this in any, any dramatic way, right? But I'd always gone through a lot of pain, right? Difficult experiences, things that I wished I was doing better at, etc. And the question was always in the back of my mind, like, how can I, how can I get better, right? How can I get better at this? Or how can I get less like this? Um, and this is what led me to personal development. I think it's something that I, I always ask myself the questions. Mm. I started figuring out how to find the answers mm-hmm. as I grew in my professional career. Um, and when I decided to leave consulting a couple of years ago, um, I did what many consultants do, right? I went and I traveled for a while um, to process out. <laughs> like, needed. Hey, of course, right? You want to process out what, whatever it is that's residual from the experience, right? Yeah. The burnout, any resentment, the tiredness, etc. And once those were processed out and I came back to think, okay, what do I want to do? Um, one thing I thought of, yeah, there's this concept of flow, mm. right? What do you do when, you, when you're in flow and you're not thinking about the time and you're finding a lot of joy? And for me, when I thought back over my professional sort of journey, it was always the times where I was involved in some way in learning or facilitation, right? Mm. Facilitating a workshop, facilitating a program, uh, leading uh, a learning program. And so I decided to focus on that. And of course, one aspect of that is designing and delivering a program, mm. uh, which is sort of the one-to-many approach, right? Yeah. You're one facilitator. There are many participants. And there's another aspect of learning, which is the one-to-one or the coaching aspect. Yeah. Have, right? you, done any, have you done any of that at McKinsey? Like one-on-one? Um, I haven't. So I think when you talk about coaching in the context of consulting, it means different things than mm. the one-on-one coaching, right? Yeah. Um, you'll remember this from your own journey, right? When, when we talk about, you know, oh, I coached my teammate when you're a project manager, it's like I gave them feedback, I showed them how to, you know, I gave yeah. them good guidance on how to do things. And when I stepped out of... Uh, McKinsey and out of consulting, I started to understand the whole new meaning for coaching, right? right? And the coaching that I'm in contact with right now isn't where you give somebody guidance, right? Or you give somebody your version of the answer or feedback, Mm. but you really um, hold up a mirror to them and tell them, this is what I'm hearing you say this is the perspective I'm hearing from you on whatever topic it is that you're focusing the coaching on. And then simply asking questions that help the other person either push their thinking or see this particular topic in a new light. Yeah. So I'm not interested in taking you down a certain road, but just helping you figure out where would you like to go this Next. is at the core of life coaching, actually, right? Is that I'm not going to give you any advice. I'm going to just like guide you. So do you ever find yourself needing to strike the balance between um, asking questions and then like pushing somebody who seems to like not get the answer that is so obvious in front of you that they should do something specific about the problem that they're coming with? And instead of you asking questions, you feel like you want to jump in and tell them what they should do. Do you ever get this kind of... Uh, I, 
So you're asking a really important question, right? Which is this question of balance between listening and holding up the mirror versus guiding and telling. Yeah. Right? And I, in all of the training you get in coaching, right? A lot of it centers around you don't have a position on the solution, right? Your, your role is to be the mirror, the sounding board, and to uh, ask right? Without offering a perspective. Yeah. Um, and I can't claim to be a very well experienced coach. I think I'm still, uh, I'm very humbly, I very humbly admit that I'm very early in my coaching journey. So where, where so, are you, Nujun? Are you actually practicing it or? So I'm practicing coaching right now. I have taken on uh, a number of coaching clients. I've gone through um, a number of uh, sort of training programs. Mm. Um, and I recognize that I have such a long way to go mm. uh, with coaching. Um, and I think if it's always a struggle for me to answer this question, right? Because if uh, the person I was talking to was a friend of mine, it would be much easier. I think it's much easier for me to navigate sure. um, the, the balance between telling and simply asking, yeah. right? And, and I recognize it. A lot of times when I'm sitting with, a coach, right? Mm. I'm really, what I really need is advice. somebody to give me advice, yeah. right? Um, and I think that role is played by different people, yeah. right? At least in the professional context. So I, what I focus on is uh, coaching in the, in coaching of executives, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Um, and in that context, uh, your role is to help whoever it is that you have a coaching relationship with, push their own thinking and develop their own perspective. Right. Uh, the advice getting, um, you have other people that you can turn to, right? Mentors. Um, and it, de- it also depends on what topic, right? You're yeah. seeking advice on. Um, yeah, yeah, true. Are you seeking advice on something that has to do with your personal relationships? Is it something to do with your leadership style? Is it something to do with how you're approaching business decisions or a particular business decision? Yeah. So it's it's really a tough thing. I think what I've seen from more experienced coaches is that they each have their own uh, balance point that yeah. they're comfortable with. Yeah. Some of them are very religious about saying. I don't give advice. Yeah. And some of them actually step in and out of that role yeah. every once in a and while. The ones that don't give the advice are trying to let the person own their own decision. And they don't like, is it because of the accountability that you feel you don't want to feel like you influence somebody in the wrong way, potentially. So it's a safer way to get them to arrive on their own decision. And so you just guide them to it. Or is it more about the fact that you want them to feel like they, you know, determine their own fate with their own choices? I or- can't speak for other coaches, right? But I think one thing, one principle that I've heard a lot in my coaching training, right? Is you believe the person who's on the other side of the coaching relationship already has within them the capacity to answer their own questions. Yeah. Your job is to help them push through and develop their perspective to the point where they feel comfortable taking a stand or finding a different perspective. So let's take an example of something you've done, like without obviously mentioning who the client is. What, were, what are some of the interesting cases that you've come across that you think are a good example of how coaching can be uh, 
resolved or sorry like a certain problem that a person has can be resolved through the kind of coaching that you're doing have you come across a certain client case that you can share confidentially and have that potentially played out and what kind of problem that person had i can't talk about a particular case mm. but i can i can talk about an example right particularly when it comes to leadership style yeah um let's say we have a leader who has a particular style it can be you know some some leaders rely a lot on driving consensus some leaders rely a lot on sort of uh, performance right or pressure uh, as a leadership style and of course for leaders who are accomplished right um, that style works mm. until it doesn't right you inevitably might hit some challenges or find out hey you know things are not working the way i would want them to work yeah right and at that point i mean i could if i were if i were a friend of this person right it's very easy for me to make a judgment call and say hey man you're too aggressive or you're too soft yeah right but that also that judgment and that advice comes from my own perspective and my own um interpretation interpretation yeah right and I think one of the things you recognize or right or you I mean you learn it as you develop your own leadership one would hope I hope right mm. and it's something that I've definitely learned mm. is that your perspective is by no means the truth mm. right and neither is your solution the only solution that works um and it's not necessary that there's a single solution that works all the time yeah right so if you're yesan yeah. right and you're quite hard on your direct reports yeah right now my role as a coach is to help you see this situation that you have yeah. with or this relationship that you've developed with your direct reports from different angles so yeah. you might see it from one angle right you do it because you have certain beliefs yeah. right my job or my role the role that i would take is to help you shine a light and see this is how you're seeing it right what's another way to look at this situation mm. how could the people you're reporting to be looking at this situation right yeah what are the assumptions that you're carrying by being hard right yeah the predispositions you have as well um i think the fact that different people have uh different perspectives and the inability for somebody with a certain confirmation bias to be able to see it is super helpful um what happened with the two of us when we had our chat in hamptons yeah. is that um because i've had those sessions before i've had coaching sessions i've had therapy sessions of all, all sorts of things um but something about the communication style and the subtle persuasiveness that you're able to apply to somebody and i don't know if that's communication style or like you know some people prefer tough love others prefer positive affirmation some people prefer talking to somebody who's been there done that others prefer somebody to talk from a place of authority um for me this you know putting all the academics aside and certifications and practicing and all that you've done uh i have the opinion that you can be coached by a friend or by a random person that you come across like the way i kind of got you know i met without that person being a coach they can guide you towards those things in a very effective way simply because their style of communication what they what they've been through relates to what you've been going through and that in and of itself can be sufficient to um it replaces all the academic kind of approaches to co- to coaching simply because somebody is relevant and and relatable to your problem um and i guess 
it, in your case, because you're doing executive coaching mostly, because you went to McKinsey, and so obviously executives are within your uh, direct vicinity for, for, for coaching. But on a personal level, do you also find that you know you are coaching friends, maybe even indirectly without you realizing it, uh, or people seek you out because you are a very persuasive person, but not in a direct and an obvious way. You're just like very relatable, and I find that to be one of the key key success factors for for coaching. I, Do you get that from friends and, and so I've been listening to and giving advice to my friends for a really long time. Um, since I was a teenager, right? I found myself in a situation where friends would come and open up to me mm. um, and share what they were going through, what was on their mind. And I enjoy engaging with people on deep topics. Often those that depth comes with challenges, right? Yeah. It's not all smooth sailing when you're, uh, when you're going deep. Um, and I don't know if I would call it coaching, but there's a lot of overlap, right? I yeah. mean, let me ask you, just thinking sure, sure. back to our interaction yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when we met at the Hamptons, you said you found it to be a great session, yeah, right? What were, what were the things that um, sort of, you know, you found surprising or that struck you from that interaction between us? So one thing that you had also mentioned in that chat that I've noticed, even if you hadn't mentioned it, was that you are an empath. And, and to me, you know, empathy means, you can define it in many ways, but straight up means like you were a good listener, you know, and every, every time I was talking about myself at a given point in our conversation, you were fully tuned in. And I could tell the second point is that you've been through something that I'm talking to you about. At the time, I think I was talking to you about my existential crisis, which is still ongoing. <laughs> and um, and I felt like you, and that's what I, for me was the most therapeutic part of our conversation, is that you were able to relate uh, to what I was talking about. Because maybe because we've both done consulting, maybe because we both went through the same kind of questions at one point. Perhaps we also read some books and we started, you know, so there was a common denominator that for me was like, you know, Something about a good conversation and, and, and a, having a thought partner in any conversation, but especially in, in, in a, like a, one where you're discussing something personal, is like a it's like a nice dance almost. Like like you know somebody, and it, it's it's the kind of thing that I would you know I felt like after this conversation I should just give you two hundred dollars for this hour that we spent because <laughs> you know it was worthwhile. It was very therapeutic, and uh, one of the things I was hoping to do in this kind of like uh, podcast is kind of identify the key success factors that people should seek. Uh, yeah. when they look for a coach and yeah. and you know you can look at certification you can look at somebody's track record how many years of experience they have do they have a degree from harvard in coaching if they even offer such a degree at this point in harvard i don't know um or like should you look for like th the software skills in a therapist or a coach or whatever you want to call it that would make like that would allow people to get the most out of these sessions yeah. right um, especially because I think that this entire space of wellness has been somewhat contaminated. Everybody is a self-proclaimed therapist. Everybody's a healer. Everybody's a coach. It's hard to understand for my problem, what do I need? Do I need a theta healer? Do I need a, a mental coach? And everybody claims to be one. So then actually one of the things I wanted to ask you is how, how does one demystify the space and, and select the right practitioner for his or her problem? Yeah. Is there like some sort of framework that allows, okay, for this problem, you, you need this type of person or... And even, you know, let's let maybe let's start with that. Is there like any sort of general guidelines for how people should choose who they should work with? You know, that's a fantastic question. And I'm, if I'm honest, I don't have an answer to it, right? <laughs> I think one of the things, because I've been, I've had my share of challenges that I'm trying to overcome, right? Yeah. And for some of them, uh, working with a coach has been great. 
Yeah. For some of them, I worked with a therapist and it didn't work out. Yeah. And for some of them, I worked with a therapist on the same challenges, but a different kind of therapy and it did work out. Yeah. Um, and for yet others, so it's funny that you mentioned Theta Healing. I'm about to try my first Theta Healing session uh, this Thursday, right? Uh, oh, you haven't had it before? I haven't done a Theta Healing before. Okay, it's, gonna, um, it's a bit trippy. Uh, uh, really? I mean, you do it soberly. You're not taking any psychedelics okay. or ayahuasca or anything. But yeah, they will take you to a seventh plane and your soul exits your body and and you're, you meet old prophets along the way of your journey. So it's a very kind of like mentally psychedelic experience, even though you're doing it soberly. Yeah. You might find yourself like bawling your eyes out if you get into it. I mean, if you're doing it with a lot of skepticism, you might find yourself giggling as, as that person is grabbing your hand and taking you to all the different layers of the universe. <laughs> That's kind of what it is. <laughs> and, you know, listening to you talk now, I something <clears throat> sparked for me in the discussion, right? You asked me, what are the good or what are the key success factors? What would you rely on to get the best or to, you know, to know which coach to choose? Yeah. I think there's a corollary question to that, mm. right? That's equally important, which is what do you need yeah. right, for yourself right. to get the best out of coaching? Sure. Right? And I think one of the things, just listening to you talk, right? Mm. I, have, I have a super strong analytical mind. Consultant, mm. not surprising, yeah, right? Yeah. And I have a tough time accepting things that my mind cannot analyze and make sense of in the ways that I'm used to. Yeah. Right. And I think one of the key factors for success for me in trying these different modalities, right, or these mm. different pathways um, of healing, therapy, personal development, growth, so many, so many words to describe what's the same yeah. general space, right, uh, is an open mind. Yeah. Right? Because even a bad therapist or a bad coach, right, I believe can still carry lessons. Yeah. Right? It might be the lesson of, you know, here are the 10 things I need to ask the next time before I get in, in bed, so to speak, right, with yeah. another therapist or with another uh, healer. But you still learn a lot. Yeah. And I think... We are, we have a strong impulse for judgment, mm. right? And simple judgment. Mm. This is good. This is bad. Yeah. This is great. This crap, right? But the truth is it's for the vast majority of the interactions I've had, it's never really that black and white. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be true for it to be helpful, right? Huh? Uh, like placebo, uh, I know quite a few friends, family members who... I questioned the modality that they're following because straight up they made me, they hooked me up with their therapist or healer. And at actually at one point, this is a true story. One of them was swinging a pendulum in front of me. It's the same healer that had worked with one of my very close people in my life. Okay. And, and, and his approach to whatever he, modality of healing he was doing involved swinging a pendulum. And right off the bat, I lost interest. Like there's nothing you can be doing right now. Um, but whoever was actually working with this person <laughs> has benefited a lot. And objectively, their life got better, right? Like they, uh, they were depressed. They were no longer depressed. They were dependent on uh, substances, alcohol, whatever. No, no longer the case. Lost weight, a bunch of things, right? Um, so then in my head, like the more power to these potentially bullshitters, if at the end of the day, they're going to work with people and they're going to benefit, right? I, I mean, I'm taking an extreme position here for the sake of the discussion, right? But um, so on the one hand, it doesn't matter if it's true or, or because it's, these things cannot really even, a lot of those modalities cannot be objectively um, 
uh, substantiated. You know, how can you prove to what extent somebody can go to your childhood trauma and resolve it? To what extent can somebody tell you about your personality based on certain alignment of stars? If you think about human, like there's just so many things that are, you know, you're going to have to believe it. And maybe it's not true, but if you believe it to be true, um, you could actually get better. Uh, the only problem with that, though, is it can exploit people. Like there are therapists and there are coaches charging a shit ton of money and they are self-proclaimed healers. They're just charismatic. And then you can street, you can, st I don't know if they are bullshitters and they know it or if they believe their own bullshit so that maybe they can get off the hook a little bit. And that's one thing I kind of don't like about this entire space of wellness is that, is that it's become commercial. It's become exploitable. People charge thousands of dollars for, for get taking money from people who are so desperate for help. And that part is it is what unfortunately contaminates it for the rest of the other practitioners who who are actually you know they have the right intentions and and even though they may not be doing something scientifically objective they are helping people. Um, for this is kind of one. This is why I have a love hate relationship with this entire space. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think in in this space as in many other spaces, right? You have great things that are happening and not so great things that are happening and particularly in things that are not that easily quantifiable and measurable, right? Yeah. And that tangible, yeah. right? Anybody can, you know, a lot of people can spin a good story and sell you something, right? But it's not, it's not true of our age. It's true of all of the ages that came before us, right? Yeah. Medicine 300 years ago, right? There were a lot of quacks out there yeah. selling different things. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I think what's, What's helped me, right, and what can potentially help others, I think one thing is to have an open mind, right? Mm. If you come in with a preconceived judgment on something, then you've kind of already closed the door on sure. the experience, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If you've already, oh, this is going to be awesome, oh, this is going to be crap, mm -hmm. right? Then how much are you really going to see of the experience? Yeah. Uh, I think the second thing is to have a bit of a critical... I don't know, a critical mind, not in the sense of poking holes, but just being a healthy skeptic about things, Yeah. right? How could, like, one great question to ask, right, is how could I be wrong about this? About whatever position I have, Yeah. how could I be wrong? Yeah. Right? This simple question just forces you to step out of the perspective that you've been holding for a really long time Yeah. and could help you discover other things in the process. Now, you might discover other things and say, hey, Actually, I don't believe that. That's bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. But still, the mere fact that you're shining a light on different perspectives enables you to sort of engage with different facets of whatever question or situation yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you're yeah. asking yourself. I, I think this is also a great example, right? Absolutely, Having conversations yeah. with people to just hear not just the voice inside your own head, right? right. Because at some point... Our voices kind of have a single track, right? Your, yeah, yeah, yeah. your ego likes what it likes and doesn't like what it doesn't like. Yes. And it's good to get opinions that are different from your own. Yeah, I mean, the ego is the, your worst enemy because the kind of open-mindedness that you're talking about really requires you to be okay with being wrong. And, and if for all the, if it could be your childhood, it could be your style of personality. Like, it'll stand in, in the way of you being, uh, not just in terms of therapy, but also like in your relationships, at work. Like, how can you ever self-identify with something you're doing um if if you're not willing to to be wrong and accept that you're wrong and, and be an open like and, and i guess some people seek psychedelics to help them destroy their ego because like they never had something uh that could destroy their ego or or, or diminish it except like the help of psychedelics so so i'm actually a big fan of like how this space will evolve 
so that it becomes a little bit more legitimized and 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 especially for those who can't find a way to deal with their ego, except with the help of like a natural stimulant like uh, I don't know ayahuasca and stuff like that. Have you do you have any experience whatsoever in this space? Uh, I'm not sure how much. Uh, I've I've gone down this road. Oh, okay. Uh, I think for me, I I mentioned this before. Yeah. I've I've been through pain, right? Like I suffer from myself, and I again, I don't mean this in a dramatic way. Yeah. Right. But I, um, I'm not always happy with myself and the things that I am and the way that I am. And I have a tough relationship. I think now in hindsight, it's easier for me to, to verbalize it. Right. But I have a tough time accepting the parts of me that I don't like. Right. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know if this is relatable to other people. Right. But I often find myself bashing myself, mm. right? Like you say something maybe that's a bit too aggressive or a bit too clumsy. And then I spend the rest of the time, oh, you're such an idiot. You shouldn't have said that. And that part is really unhealthy, mm. right? So I, it's been one of the questions I, I've been asking myself, right? Is how do I step, you call it ego, you call it, you know, I, I don't know. bias or... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know exactly, right? It's the narrative I have on myself. You're an idiot, you're clumsy, whatever it is, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But you... And sometimes I feel trapped by my mind, right? Like if I, if I get into this negative self-talk, I can find myself locked in there for the hours, days even, mm. right? So I've always um, looked for ways to escape the control that my mind has or my ego has over me. Mm. And one of those avenues that has been helpful as a way of like, here's how it could look like when your mind doesn't have so much control over you is psychedelics. Yeah. Right? Including ayahuasca. Yeah. And ayahuasca is, and I don't know how other people see it, right? Mm. But the, 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 the way it was introduced to me is it's a plant medicine, mm. right? So there's, a, there's an operative word of medicine in there, yeah. right? It works on healing different parts of you. and Yeah, it's not fun. It's not like a recreational... <laughs> no, no, it's not like, woohoo, party! <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's not how it is, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. people describe having fantastic journeys sure. um, while after they take ayahuasca, but it's... The way I see it, right, mm. at least, is it's a it's a healer that allows you to go beyond the world that only your mind that your mind knows how to describe and analyze and make sense of. Yeah, and that's not the only world that exists out there. It's not the like the world that your mind sees and touches and has prior references to is not the only thing that exists. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is actually mind blowing. I mean, uh, I had a similar experience with, with mushrooms and it was uh, the epiphanies that you get, especially if you're doing it with deliberate kind of, not like just to have fun and party, but you're doing it with an intention to, to, to kind of get the right insights and enlightenment towards a certain uh even without trying to address a certain problem, but just coming at it from a place of like complete like surrendering to what the experience is going to be can be very insightful. Uh, and unfortunately, doesn't at least with me, I felt like it didn't. It, it lasted. It sort of shriveled. Like the, the effects of it die away as time passes from the, the experience. It doesn't stick with you. It's not like whatever you experience there stays with you, and then when you sober up, it stays there. So, um, which is why some people talk about like microdosing and stuff. But um, one thing you've mentioned 
earlier and I wanted to ask you about is like how a lot of what drove you to become a coach and, and to kind of work in that space is that you had your own issues and you struggled a lot with them. And uh, I, I came across this phrase a little bit too late in my life, which is the wounded healer, like mm. Carl Jung. Uh, like he coined the term that uh, you have all these people that become healers or coaches or helpful in some way because of a certain wound that they've had. So it's almost like a way to deal with their own wounds that they become healers. And then uh, I, as I started, you know, in my own journey, um, I found out that in the 12 steps for addiction, mm. the last step uh, that, that prevents you from going back to an, becoming an addict is having to help other yes. addicts along the way. So it's like if you don't do the 12th step, you might just fall back into your addiction, whatever it is, alcohol, drugs, gambling, whatever it is. And so I thought it was pretty interesting that like all those amazing people out there who are helping other people are doing it from a place of themselves having been hurt and or, or struggled with a certain problem. And the only way for them to almost deal with that struggle and resolve it is by, by extending out whatever they've applied to themselves to the people around them. And that just becomes like kind of a pass it on or, you know, and, and it's, it, it almost feels like, you know, you need to go through shit in order to be able to coach other people. Like you can't come at it from a privileged place, like, you know, it, or it gives you an advantage as a human being to help people if you have been through shit rather than somebody who's had a golden spoon in their mouth all, all life, all their lives, and suddenly they're like they're gonna sit there and resolve issues. Like it's they're not as well equipped. You know what I mean? Do you, do you relate to that? I think I don't think it's the only way. Yeah. Right. But I think it's much easier to have empathy for someone. Yeah. When you've had a taste of the experience that they've had. Yeah. Right. I, and as as much as you can try to imagine yeah. um, what it's like to be in somebody's shoes, I don't think it's as powerful as having been through somebody's shoes. Now, it doesn't mean that you can only help someone if you've had their same kind of trauma or challenge, right? But I yeah. think having gone through challenges yourself, right? Uh, and not just the, the content of the challenge, right? Whatever it is, uh, affected your personality, your, the history of your childhood, etc. Mm. But also the process of the suffering that resulted from this challenge, how you try to overcome it, the failures and the successes that come along with it, right? Yeah. Having a sense of that, I think, can be a very powerful way yeah. that allows you to be empathetic yeah. with someone else. And I think that if I... If I think back to the conversations that I've had, right, that left me feeling like our conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, and conversations that I've had with others that left me feeling like, wow, this was, you know, such a nice, deep connection, such yeah. a nice sort of conversation and like food for the soul. Yeah. Part of it is feeling seen and feeling heard. Yeah. Right? Yes. Like not, you know, for me to describe something and for you to acknowledge what that is and how that experience might be for me is super powerful. Yeah, and it's a little bit like, it, it makes me sad that people don't have that in their day-to-day -day life enough that unfortunately they need to seek out a coach to get it. And it's almost like what happened to us as people? Like, Why can't we listen to each other in a way that is so thoughtful and so concentrated and give each other that need because clearly it seems like we all need it. I mean, that's why we go seek out coaches because we need somebody to sit there and listen to us 
fully focused. And, and we just don't seem to get that as people. Everybody's so self-concerned with their own shit that they, at least you have 50% of their attention maybe when you're talking to them. And that's a little bit sad, you know? Uh, which is also why coaches are in business. <laughs> but I mean, it is kind of sad that, that, that you don't, like it's a rare, it's almost a rare commodity. It's, it's a rare thing to have somebody sit there, listen to you with ears and eyes wide open, you know? And it's, you touch on such an important topic, right? I mean, we, we all listen all the time. Yeah. All the time, right? And yet somehow we've lost the ability to listen effectively. Yeah. Or what listening means to the person being listened to can be very different than what listening means to the person who's doing the listening, mm. right? There's this organization that I work with. It's a network of facilitators and coaches. They're called Cultivating Leadership, right? And one of the topics that they work with in their programs is called listening. It's listening, mm. right? Like how do you cultivate the skill of listening? Yeah. And one way to look at listening is that there are three levels of listening, right? Or th there are three modalities, let's put it this way, of listening. There's listen to fix. You come to me, right? Hey, I have this issue, that issue. Oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? What about this? What about that? You immediately go into problem-solving mode. And that's the mode. I think, I don't want to make a generalization, but most of us go into this mode most of the time. In fact, this was the modality of training for me as a consultant. I'm sure it was the same for you, right? right? Some, somebody, to comes to you, yeah. somebody comes to you with a question or with a challenge, you immediately, your instinct is to say, here are the 10 solutions you can try, <laughs> yeah. right? And that modality can be helpful when what the person really needs the most is advice, yeah. right? Or guidance, very clear guidance. Yeah. Um, there's an even more, so that's listening to fix, fix yeah. right? There's an even more basic one and more harm, in some ways more harmful one, which is listening to win. Right? right, yeah. Yeah. When I'm in a conversation with you and I'm listening to what you're saying, but I'm not really listening yeah. to what you're I saying. I have my argument ready. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just priming my argument. Oh, these are the points that you're saying. Okay, <laughs> let me prime these are these points, right? And it's great. It's great for my own ego because I feel I I got this right, right, right. I but can't it, wait till I have my turn, so I exactly. Can, like, <laughs> so I can bash this guy or show him that I'm better or smarter or more right or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And that part. It doesn't do much for the relationship. It doesn't do much for the person who's being listened to. Sure. Right? So you have listened to understand, not very helpful. Uh, listen to, uh, to uh, win, oh, yeah. which is not very helpful uh, in a lot of cases. Listen to fix. The first one. Right? Which is now the middle one. Right? Oh, okay. Um, helpful in some situations. Yeah. But also short circuits the process. And a lot of times what you actually need is listening to understand. Mm. Right? Wow, it is a spectrum. Huh? So listening yeah. to win, listening to fix, listening to understand. And listening to understand is showing someone that you really understand what it is they're saying, what they're going through, what they're describing, mm. right? Playing back what you're hearing them say, mm. maybe paraphrasing or reading between the lines, not as a judgment, Right? And that is when, when you listen and you really try to understand someone, that is when 
they feel seen and they feel heard. Yeah, and, and in addition to that, I think it establishes common ground and trust so that you can actually influence them if you are going to follow that listening with some sort of advice, right? Establishing this kind of common denominator and trust is important in order to actually get your point across. Otherwise, it's, you have walls up. And, and um, so, so, I, I, so, so they teach listening like that in this course, right? Like they actually... So yeah. one, of, one of the topics that they work with, right, that we work with is building your ability to listen in different modalities, right? Yeah. There's, there's maybe a use case for when you listen to win, yeah, right? Yeah. And there are certain use cases for when you listen to fix. Yeah. And there are certain use cases yeah. for when you listen to understand. And it's what, yeah. uh, yes, and what you're saying is very true, right? Mm. If, I, if we're sitting here and we're having a discussion, right? And I repeat to you what you said, making sure that I understand, what impact does that have on you? You heard me, and I can now listen to what you have to say more. Yeah, exactly. Makes uh, a lot of sense, 100%. And it's important to also have the ability, as you said, to listen to when, because, like, you know, in life, you're going to debate. Sometimes you're going to get in confrontational situations with somebody that's out to get to you. Uh, maybe it's uh, an enemy uh, that you've come across uh, who doesn't want well for you. And, and you know, so it's important to, 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 to actually, this is one might be taking a bit of a tangent here, but it's very relevant. It's important as a human being. To be to learn or to be to have the guts to be confrontational if you need it if you need to be confrontational and to win a debate on the spot if you're thrown into one because life is tough and people will try to or you know um, win at your expense you know it happens uh, in life in high school and then also at work and like life is just not a breeze life is a little bit of a jungle so it's important to have the ability to to stand up for yourself and be smart enough and witty enough to win certain arguments and certain battles that life, uh, you know, that you go through in life. But it's important to first get there and then calibrate down to uh, the skills that are needed of listening um, to, to understand and listening to fix. And let me explain what I mean. A lot of people are pushovers and they get stepped over in life. And it's because they never managed to, to sculpt enough skills to stand up for themselves. You know, maybe it starts off in high school. This is my opinion, by the way, total conjecture. I'm not like a certified psychiatrist or anything. But the people that I have come across in my life, starting from high school until our adult life, who were, who were weak, who were scared, who, for good or bad reason, are the kind of people that would, you know, get their asses kicked physically or otherwise. Um, those people ended up being that and, in fact, become even insecure and they compensate along the life because they never managed to first learn to stand up for themselves, get confrontational, learn how to fight those battles effectively. And this is an important skill because life is a jungle. So what I think like, should be the right trajectory, even though it's inefficient, is that people should first learn to stand up for themselves and learn how to and have the guts and the courage to be confrontational, to listen in order to win, and then calibrate it down to becoming a civilized human being who is able to... I mean, it's, it's an unpopular opinion, so feel free to, mm -hmm. to kind of uh, tell me your perspective on it. But I'd rather a person go... Like, in my opinion, I'd rather raise a kid one day, for example, who will have the, the guts and the courage to be confrontational and learn how to debate and uh, listen to win, as you said, and then learn to be empathetic afterwards, as opposed to, like, be an empath, empath all the way from, 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 from when, when they were kids... And maybe never even develop the courage because it takes courage to be confrontational and to be able to debate. And I've, that's how I find the right sequence of, of, of skills to develop. But what, what do you think about that? I, so I'm not sure I agree with yeah, that, if please. I'm honest. This is a show I, where you can I was, on it. <laughs> I, I was that kid yeah. right, that you're describing, the insecure mm. kid. I was the pushover. Right? I was very 
insecure. In fact, I'm still, in many aspects of my life, very insecure, right? And I think a lot of kids, right? And a lot of adults, I'm not going to talk about kids, right? A lot of the adults that I see that are quite aggressive, right? And quite confrontational, right? Are as equally insecure as me. That's what I found in building a relationship mm. and sort of digging under the surface with a lot of people is that aggressive does not mean confident, right? Or confrontational does not mean confident, right? Um, your ability to not be a pushover, right, is not hinged, does not hinge on your ability to win an argument. So do you, what do you, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about yourself specifically, but uh, situations in life that require you to stand up and confront a situation which is not pleasant, it's probably a situation that's going to, uh, you, know, you don't have to be physically aggressive, right? But like you have to actually confront a situation in a way that's not pleasant. It's going to generate a lot of negative emotions, mm -hmm. but somebody's going to have to stand up for yourself yeah. and that's yeah. going to be you. How, I assume you're somebody who would, right? Like you're not somebody who would run away from that situation or avoid it. Because it's confrontational. You would be surprised. Like if I talk about myself, if I look at myself 15 years ago, right? So we're talking about conflict. Sure, right? conflict. Yeah. Do you avoid conflict or do, like do you run away from conflict yes, that's or what do I you mean. run towards conflict, right? And conflict doesn't have to be, like you're saying, a situation that requires physical aggression, Yeah. right? It could be negative feedback that you need to give your peer or your boss or your subordinate. That's also conflict, Yeah. right? A lot of people shy away from that kind of conflict. Sure, yeah. They're right? scared. I mean, like, yeah. it's, it's intimidating. Yeah. Or to put boundaries for a family member. Yeah. They can shy away from that kind of conflict. And yeah. I used to be that person, right? And I think in a lot of the work that I've done, right, uh, it's really important not just to see the what, but to understand the why, mm. right? Why am I uncomfortable, right? Going to my boss or going to my peer and saying, hey, you're doing something I completely disagree with. I need you to stop doing that. Right. Right? Um, there's a fear of loss there, right? Um, there are... So there's this concept, right? And this was by a couple of guys. I think Bob Anderson was one of them. They talk about um, what your reactive mindset, right? Mm. So when things are stressful, when you're under stress, mm. how do you react, Right? And, you, and they've identified three different styles, three different reactive tendencies. So you have someone who's very accommodating. When they're under stress or when they're under conflict, they'll accommodate whatever the other side's demands are. Right. Right? Submissive, almost. Uh, almost yeah. submissive, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, a, that's another way of describing it. You have other people who are, um, I, don't, I don't exactly remember the word of the, of the model. So there's um, accommodating. Right? There are people who just withdraw. Mm -hmm. Right? If there's a conflict, I just disappear. Yeah. I run away. Okay. Right? And there are people who come head on. These are the controlling types. Right. Right? And it's really important to Sorry, understand. What's the difference between the first and the third? So uh, the accommodating, you accommodate oh, what's okay. happening, right? Oh, oh, you're see, submissive. You give the in, controlling, you're yeah. aggressive. You go against the oh, other the person. The first one gives in to the demands of the other. Yeah. Uh, the, and the, the third, one, the third one tries to impose their own demands. The one in the middle just withdraws from the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right? Um, and I used to be the accommodating type, mm. right? And behind every one of these reactive tendencies 
are certain beliefs that you have about yourself mm. or about the world, right? And the what I came to learn about myself, right, is if I don't accommodate and if I sort of uh, stand my ground or if I'm in conflict with somebody else, they could reject me. Mm. And I've always had this thing about not being good enough, right? Mm. So somebody rejecting me or giving me the signal that I'm not good enough touches a very sensitive topic within me, mm. right? So how did I get better at yeah. standing up for myself mm -hmm. and setting up my boundaries, right? I worked on this feeling of self-worth, right? Mm. Now, I, I still recognize that in a lot of places, I have this undercurrent, which is I'm not good enough, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But I don't let it go unchecked. I've done a lot of work to temper that and to build a counterbalance to that, which is, no, I am good enough. Mm. I am worthy. So what I, kind of work have you done on, on that front, like in order to deal with this? Like, is it reading books? Is it working with coaches? Is it just self-introspection that you do in a certain state? Like, as you said, maybe take some time off so you can really get, you know, your thoughts together. Is it something specific you can pinpoint or is it just a mix of things? Or is it more circumstantial? That's a, that's a really good question. Mm. Could just be maturity along the way, right? I mean, uh, I think I'm gonna make a. I don't like making blanket statements, but I'm gonna make one now, right? I think <laughs> there disclaimer. I think just the fact that you're getting older doesn't guarantee that you become more mature and more wise on these things, right? Okay. I know a lot of people my age who are still as assholey as the people that I met when I was in my 20s. Yeah, right. So it's not like 20 years of like going through the world automatically give you. Uh, wisdom and maturity. But I think if I, if I look back at my own journey, right, I can't yeah. speak for other people. What was it about my journey that enabled me today to feel, to find myself in a place where I feel like I have more wisdom, more control, less uh, sort of surrender to my impulses, the mm. negative ones, the positive ones, etc. And I think it's a process of learning. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's like everything you do on every other external dimension, like tennis, football, yeah. crypto, right? Like to get better at any one of these things, right? Yeah. You go through a process of learning, which is you gain some knowledge, right? You apply that knowledge, right? And then you reflect on the results. Yeah. And I think a lot of, I don't think we do nearly as much of that as we could be doing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, really what sets apart one en enlightened adult from another is exactly the process that they've uh, either stumbled upon, just not, not even deliberately, um, because circumstances of their life have forced them onto this path. A lot of times it's a disaster. I don't know, somebody who gambled his life savings away or had a close, you know, almost like a... Uh, almost died in a uh, driving under the influence or something like so most people unfortunately only find themselves on those kind of like introspection unfortunately in in situations that are very uh unfortunate yeah. <laughs> and very few people have enough uh, uh how do you say it like uh, en enough uh, uh, initiative to do it on their own when life is good because sometimes when life is good for you you're not going to sit there and like introspect and figure out shit for your own like life's good like i'm busy i'm productive you know I got make I gotta make ends meet. I have meetings tomorrow. I, I gotta take care of deadlines. So you kick the can on all this shit. And so sometimes some of the best things that can happen to you is actually like you you just like hit the wall like, and and then it's it's a it's it's almost a blessing in disguise, right? Um, 
which is actually which brings me to my next the next point that I want to talk to you about, and that is basically um, the desire to help people and the desire to help yourself first and then help mm. pe- people second seems to be the kind of thing that usually people have um, after they themselves have struggled with a certain problem. We've, we've, we agreed to that, right? Uh, whether you're an addict and you're doing your 12th step or whether you've you're, you're had some issues and like it, it stemmed out into helping other people and it became a strength to help people, that seems to be either one of those equations that is consistent. Unfortunately, what I'm a little bit sad about is why people who have the capacity to help other people and not necessarily by coaching them or... Um, becoming therapists, but they have the capacity, the resources to help other people, right? It could be like altruism, philanthropy. A lot of the people with that capacity don't have that calling. And I find that to be a bit counterintuitive to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or any sort of other kind of framework where you would think that when you have a lot of money in life and when you've tried a lot of shit and like you're supposed to be at this point, like nothing else should satisfy other than to help people. And a lot of people don't. Most people who are rich just are trying to get richer. Uh, and if they're not trying to get richer, they're just depressed and they have no purpose in life. Go fucking help people. Like, go help people. Like, and I'm one of those people who sometimes finds himself bored, uh, purpose, having no purpose in whatever I'm doing. I burn time like a, like a, like a, you know, like an expert. And I almost wish I had, like, the calling to help other people was a more stronger natural need. And I always want, like, why, why aren't people more naturally inclined for philanthropy and altruism? when they are privileged and have the capacity to do it. I don't know if you've come across any, uh, by the way, this is, I know that this is total conjecture, so I don't expect you to give any certified answer on this, but like, have you given it any thought? Like, why are people who in, in a position to help other people not doing it naturally? And like, it doesn't come to them naturally. I, I often wonder on the same question. And what you're describing is the what, right? People are just not helping yeah. other people, right? Yeah. And I, I'm very curious to understand the why, right? And usually the why, a lot of the times what I find is the why is not so obvious or simple. Um, I'll take myself as an example, right? I'm relatively well off, right? Do I do a lot in terms of philanthropy? No, right? One of my core beliefs and fears, right, is this fear of being poor, right? And therefore, my relationship with money is quite weird. That can stop me from being more philanthropic than I am. I can imagine for people who are rich, even if to the outside world, they're quite rich, right? There must be, I I wonder what kind of belief about their worldview they're holding, right? that is blocking them from being more generous or more helping or more altruistic. Altruistic, right? Because I want to make sure yeah. that we're talking not just about financial like philanthropy, but altruism, like really having the uh, the desire to help out other people. It could be with your money if you have it, uh, or with something like somehow taking initiative to help other people. It doesn't seem to come naturally. And I'm also one of them, by the way. I feel guilty. I almost wonder why am I, why is a desire to help people not more naturally strong enough for me to actually get off my ass and do it? And and why do I kick the can on it and decide to watch Facebook videos of puppies and cats and whatever the hell I'm watching on? Like, and by the way, one answer could be that we are, I also wondered, we might be just distracted with instant gratification uh, syringes, which are Facebook uh, apps and porn and alcohol and all this instant gratification things. But if we didn't have them around, maybe the only thing left to do is help people. So it could also be the fact that 
we're cannibalizing um, our own capacity to become altruistic by by with all these instant gratification uh, tools that are around us, right? And that's that's really sad. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's ridiculous because almost. we're we're easily distractible animals, yeah. right? And we love that. I don't know, serotonin, dopamine cycle, right? You do something instantly and you get a hit from it, yeah. right? Uh, that's, how, that's how a lot of social media uh, companies, apps, platforms, addictive products are designed. That's what they prey on, yeah. right? Uh, and on top of that, right? People hold a lot of beliefs about how the world works, yeah. right? Not always beliefs that they're conscious about, yeah. right? If um, you grew up, right, in, um, in an environment that was aggressive, right, where people took from each other because it was a time of war, mm. right, or it was a time of poverty, you might have, as a kid, right, heard your father or your mother or your parents say, right, always take care of your own first. Yes. Don't talk to strangers. Strangers might be dangerous, yeah. right? Have that fester in you for 20, 30, 40 years, and then you come across a stranger in the road, right? You don't know what kind of impact that unconscious belief, which you probably haven't thought of, and you're probably not even aware that you have this memory, yeah, right? For 20, 30 years, right? It's probably what's driving some of these initial, you know, you step back or, you know, your instincts just keep walking rather than trying to help someone. So I think a lot of, what we could be doing more of is understanding ourselves better. Mm. Why is it that I act the way I do? Why is it that certain topics trigger me? Mm. Right? Uh, Because once you start going below the surface and you start understanding what are the beliefs I'm holding about myself and about the world, right? Once you bring awareness to those beliefs, awareness is the first step of change. So if you bring awareness to what that belief is, then you have a real opportunity to change it. Yeah, and I mean, because this now reminds me of a saying that says the enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, is the illusion of knowledge. And I think Einstein said mm-hmm. that. So when you say awareness, uh, how do you how do you validate whether the because like you could come to a conclusion that is totally like uh, incorrect. Uh, I mean, the, or to the extent that we can even use the word incorrect, because as you said, everything is subjective, perception matters, and so on. Uh, and I think this is where the coach. Maybe not actually, because the coach is not going to tell you if your if your perception is right or wrong. That would not be the right. Uh, how how can you get to how can you as a human being? Two parts to this question. How can you achieve? How can you get to awareness that is useful for you without having to uh, get to that awareness in a disa- from a disastrous circumstance? So so get there voluntarily without having to like deal with shit um, in order to get there. And second, how can you um, know if this awareness is true? or if it's confirmation bias or cognitive dissonance, right? Because a lot of times, like, you try to make up an awareness that, 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 that you know, validates your worldview, which is cognitive dissonance in, in some way. So is there a way to, like, kind of litmus test, like, your awareness to make sure that, A, it's, it's correct, and B, that it also is, is I and mean, you've taken initiative to get there? Uh, those are beautiful questions, by, <laughs> by the, way. the way. I don't expect you to. These are questions mm. that I think about. I, yeah. these, these are questions that are yeah. on my mind okay. a lot as well. So I want to make sure right? you're not expected to answer them like somebody who's... <laughs> and, I, and I think yeah. awareness, right? You bring awareness to something 
by paying attention to it. Yeah. Right? And a lot of the times, there are many things in our life we don't pay attention to. Yeah. I'll take a simple, the yeah. simplest example in the world, breathing. Yeah. Most of the time, you're not aware that you're breathing. Mm. You don't pay attention. So bringing awareness, right? In meditation, you have this bring awareness to your breath. You sit there in silence and you just notice how you're breathing. And simply by the act of bringing awareness to your breathing, you start to notice. Slowing down. You notice the rhythm of um, sort of your chest going up and down. And what that awareness does is it mm. focuses your attention. When you're focusing on your breath, right? And you're giving it your full attention, you suddenly find that you're outside your head and all of the competing thoughts, yeah. right? By the, same, by the same mechanism, right? Bringing that awareness to the different situations that acro come across you in life or paying attention to the different situations that come across you in life yeah. can help you build awareness of what's going on and then as a next step, why yeah. might it's that be going on? A bit of conditioning on? then, right? Like... Uh... It, It's, it's more like investigation, right? So uh, one example, mm. right? Um, if you're the type of person who um, eats, binge eats, right? You binge eat. You might accept, you know, I binge eat. That's it, mm. right? But what if you were to pay attention during the process of binge eating? Mm. What happened before the binge eating? What happens after the binge eating? What happens during? This is something I had to go through. I have a problem with binge eating. Right? So it's something I had to go through as part of my therapy. Right? And I learned a lot about how I function and how stress and anxiety impact my life simply by paying attention to this repetitive process that I go through, which is I binge eat a lot. Right? I'm just thinking, like, is it the kind? Because, like, you got to think you you've reached all these you know you managed to get all this insight and enlightenment from what I remember you saying earlier, right after you left McKinsey, and you had the mental capacity to actually introspect and think about those things. Um, was it a, like was it a choice, like, or was it like a circumstance that forced you into this void of of introspection? Because like, most people like just simply will not engage in this process that you're talking about, smart as it sounds, uh, useful as it might be. Most people will not. Uh, they will kick the can on this very important exercise because life is too busy for them at that moment. I can understand. Or that. they have to, like I said earlier, get into a very unfortunate situation. They have a car accident or they, they do something disastrous for them to like have a wake-up call. And it's like, if ideally human beings should be able to just get to this point voluntarily on their own without having so... But yes, human beings are not ideal, right? I would love to say... You said, you know, usually people go through some kind of catastrophe with yeah. a small C, yeah, right? Yeah. Before or they, a big C sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Or a big C, yeah. right? But it doesn't always have to be a big C, right? Sure, But sure, they go sure. into some kind of catastrophe or challenge or pain before they find themselves going down this road. And most of the time, I'm too busy, right? Or unconsciously, right? Especially when things are not, when things are going relatively okay. This process is painful. Mm. Like discovering the darker sides of yourself, the, the parts you're trying to hide, right? Yeah. The parts that, are, that have shame, that you're not proud of. Yeah. There's a lot of pain attached to that, right? And that pain is not a pleasant experience. So, so what, what makes you confront that pain willingly? Like, is it the fact that 
you have a support system that can make up for the pain that you're going to go through temporarily. And so you kind of depend on that support system. It could be like a, a wife, a partner, a group of friends, a job. Or is it that you are so uh, aware of the positive results that are going to come out of that pain, pro painful process, almost like a surgery, that you are so invested in the outcome that you're willing to go through the pain? Like what, what allows you to finally step into this pain, knowing exactly that it's going to be painful? Because most people know that it's going to be painful. They just avoid it, right? And then some people like jump headfirst into this pain. And, 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 and I'm, I'm wondering, what is it that would incentivize people to go through the painful process? Is it that create a support system first that you can rely on after the painful process? Or just accept that it's like a surgery. It'll hurt for a few weeks, like you're gonna have to go through physiotherapy, but then you're gonna have a new shoulder. I think having, having the, um, having the um, support system is a mechanism. It's what helps you go through the pain. Yeah. But I think ultimately the decision to go through yeah. this process and to go through the pain depends on what you believe about the role going through that process mm. will play, mm. right? At some point, I could not accept living with the yeah. pain that I had, right? Again, small p, not big P, right? But I didn't, there has to be a better way. Yeah. I have to find a way to live with less pain and suffering, right? And it depends. If you believe that ultimately you're going to be better for it, then you might be willing to try it, yeah. right? Or, or, the, or if you don't have a choice, right? I don't have a choice but to go through this pain because the alternative is coping mechanisms that don't work. I mean, or they work temporarily until they don't, right? And, and that's usually uh, you need to cope with your problems. Like that's a, the that's a logical order of things. Human beings face issues. They cope with them in all different ways. Uh, they realize that this is not, like it's not, uh, like it, it's, it's not, uh, it's, not a, it's not a reliable me mechanism. Um, and, and eventually, like, it breaks all the coping mechanisms that you might apply. And so, like, you, something else needs to be done instead of all those coping mechanisms, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's just, I guess, that is maturity. I mean, it happens. It doesn't matter what your age is, but it, it, when you're willing to do that, it happens eventually. Let me ask you about consulting, because I know that earlier you said that there was a lot of trauma from McKinsey days. We both did consulting. Um, it goes without saying that consulting is an industry that burns you out. Uh, the hours are long, the traveling is intense. And uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm opening up with that part because I don't, I, I, don't, I don't want the cliche answer of, uh, yeah, consulting is bad because the hours are long. Everybody knows the hours are long. What did you hear about consulting aside of that long hours? Uh, we, all, we both learned a lot from consulting because we are where we are today. Thank God for consulting. Like, yeah, it's a, I'm so happy that I did consulting. Like, I would put my, if I ever have a kid one day, consulting is the new be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an engineer, the kind of thing that you parents used to tell you when you were young. Yeah. Uh, I think consulting is that. So it's definitely not net positive. But yeah, it can take a toll on your soul. Yeah, absolutely. So what for you was, or if, you know, what is, what is one thing you really loved about consulting and what's one thing that was particularly traumatic or you hated about consulting? Uh, two things I really loved about consulting and maybe I'll say two things I really hated about yeah. consulting. Right? I think... The industry, the industry's ability to put together, and that was certainly my experience, right, at McKinsey, to put together a smart and talented bunch of people together, right, that speak the same language, approach the work with the same level of ethic and motivation, right? Your ability to produce without 
so without talking about like how useful that production is, but your ability to produce high quality output, mm. right? And to move the discussion and the sort of thinking along intellectually, I think is unrivaled except in very few other industries, right? And I've spoken to a lot of my friends who left consulting to work in corporate jobs afterwards. And you ask them, you know, what do you miss about consulting? I miss being around this fantastic group of people. Yeah. Right? It's like being part of a um, Serie A football team, right? Like everybody's just at the top of their game, at least intellectually. Sure, yeah. Right? Uh, I think that was one. And the other thing that I really loved that was related to it was the, the compression of learning and development. Right? I think I developed and learned more in the years that I was in consulting. They would have taken me yeah. maybe three, four times that much to get to this level of learning and development outside. Right? Absolutely. Um, what did I hate? Right? I think one which a lot of probably current and ex-consultants will um, relate to, right, is impact. Yeah. Or what I many times felt as lack thereof. Yeah. Uh, we, your product at the end of the day for many consulting engagements, maybe that, that's changing now with the type of work that consulting companies are doing, right? Um, but a lot of the... A lot of the work that happens, happens and remains and is left on paper. Yeah. Right? Um, and that... It's a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame. I think that's the right word, Yazan. Yeah. It's a shame, right? Yeah. Because you want to get to impact. Sure. Yeah. Right? And you're limited in your ability to do that. And you're limited by time. You're limited by... Uh, sort of your bureaucracy. bandwidth, your by bureaucracy, whatever it is, but you get to a place where you're like, but I, how do I make this real? Yeah. How do I make the change actually happen instead of saying it in like 500 pages of PowerPoint? Yeah. Um, and I think the the second thing that I find now, just looking back at consulting, there was the system of consulting, regardless of the company that you're in, right? But the system of consulting perpetuated many of the challenges that I had on a personal level, right? You take a bunch of people, right, who are insecure. Many are insecure. I was insecure. Sure. I am still, right? Um, you put them under intense pressure, Right? A lot of pressure. And in a cycle of you need to do better to get to the next um, to get to the next promotion, to get to the next performance cycle, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you become like a rat or a hamster, hamster on a wheel. Yeah. Right? And because you're so busy, right? This is this goes back to the point you were saying. You're so busy and you're so overwhelmed all the time, you neglect not just to look at the things about you that are painful, yeah. you even neglect the healthy parts of yourself, yeah. right? And I know a lot of consulting companies now are working towards balance and having a balanced life. But the fact of the matter is, 
right? If you tell someone it's up to you to manage your own healthy life and you apply so much pressure and client deadlines and the performance cycle and you tell them, but you have the ability to choose the healthy things. What do you think they're going to do most of the time? Oh, my right? God. That's it's like crazy. telling a fat kid, you know, I blame you for eating the cake. Yeah. Dude, I'm fat and you put cake in front of me. Of course, I'm going to eat the cake. <laughs> so true. Right, 100%. Because yeah. they, they, they create all these constraints. And McKinsey is not, not, a, not a merciful company. They have an up or, up or out uh, structure, right? Like, uh, I guess all consulting firms now have some form of it. But like McKinsey specifically, uh, they have an up or out uh, structure to their development. Like if you don't get promoted within a certain amount of time, you're out of the company, right? That's, that's, isn't this true for McKinsey? I, I think that's true for the consulting track. I think it's not a McKinsey-specific thing, right? Yeah. It's also true for a lot of companies in consulting. Sure. I, I think the pressure that that creates, right? Yeah, yeah. That you're, you need to perform at the next level or you go, yeah. um, makes it very difficult for you to draw your boundaries and to stick to them, yeah. right? Be, because there's a little voice in the back of your head saying, if I don't, you know, work this weekend and if I don't put in the 20 hours a day, yeah. right? And it's okay. It's one daughter's birthday. It's just one birthday. Yeah. It's okay. I'll miss it this time. Oh my God. But I'm about to make partner. Yeah. Right. And then before you know it, 10 years have gone by and you don't know who your kids are. Right. Not that I have kids. Right. But I've, I've had this conversation with ex consultants, partners who probably were traveling 90% of the time. Yeah. Right. And you know what saddens me is that a lot of people in consulting, I remember having a chat that one time with a partner and I was like, this is a guy that I actually really look up to. He's one of the few people in consulting that, that really is managed to find strike that optimal balance between not having his soul hijacked with the consulting industry or the corporate industry in general and still you know maintain some values and 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 uh, be a good you know husband and a good father and and even a good manager and, and you know um and then i because I, I remember how much he you know he cared about this sort of stuff and he didn't let consulting somehow he managed to not let consulting do that to him and i asked him dude like what's what's what is it with all these partners who like almost uh, or not just partners, like what is it with con- people in consulting who don't seem to mind being away from their families all this time? And you know what he told me, which is really sad? He's like, it's actually good for it. Like for these, there's a group of people, a lot of people in consulting. And, and by the way, this is true for other industries as well, banking, legal, any kind of job that literally hijacks you from life. And, and is, that, is that these, like they live a better life spending more than half of it away from their family. Like they would actually be better off spending more than half of their time away from their families than if they were to be spending more time with their family. And that saddened me a little bit. Like, I think there's healthy distance that you can have as a professional um, to focus on your career and, and, and not be day in, day out with, with, your, with, your, with your family. But to, to, to escape from your family, and the more you escape, the better. And like, when you have to actually go back to your house and see your kids and your wife or whatever it is, uh, is a time that is like almost like you have to do it, but like the actual time that you'd rather do is spend the time away from your family. That actually saddened me, and and and, this, and like we and it, you know, he he said that to me, and I realized that they sounded they these people seemed happier traveling every single week than being back at home with their families, and that was a little bit sad. You know what it I mean? Is. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, listening to you talk, it's very easy to get caught up in what you're doing now or in what's right in front of you, right? The next promotion, the next deal that I'm closing, the next project that I'm delivering, yeah. right? Uh, and to say, it's okay. I'll let these other things go in service of this. Mm. And then there's this very famous article um, 
I think it was published in HB, HBR um, about sort of this longitudinal study where they followed 500 people. I don't know what it was, right? Over the course of their life. Oh, I know what you're talking and about. And then um, as they were approaching the end of their life, like what mattered most to you in life or what are the things you look back on your life? I think there's even a related book now called The Top Regrets, The, the Regrets of the Dying. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I know and a- I think the one thing that struck me is None of them ever mentioned their achievements, right? Yes. I made partner in record time or I closed this deal of X million or I bought this house. It was always about the relationships that they right? missed out on. That they that they either had and they were very grateful for or they didn't have and they yeah. were like, oh my God, how could I have yeah. been? Like, I really wish I had invested more time yeah. in building meaningful relationship. And I think it, yeah. when I listen to you describe the situation, yeah. it's sad. It what sad. an opportunity to build meaningful relationships with the people closest to you. Yeah. Yeah, to escape from life and to escape from what really matters by, by, by being distracted and busy and being a hamster on a wheel is sad. It's like I can't sort out why I'm unhappy or whatever it is. So let me just go and get busy and travel and take a flight, whatever it is, and, and spend 20 hours a day working. Um, it's sad. Um, one thing I hated about consulting, so I, I love a lot of things about consulting. I love the structure it gave me to my logic. I love the mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive approach to any problem, so personal or professional that I was able to like learn from consulting and, and things like that, right? So, so academically, intellectually, you know, thank God I went to consulting. What I hated is, and, and this goes back to your point about impact, is that, um, and this is, yeah, I guess it's, have you seen a, a show called House of Lies? I've I've seen an episode. Okay, so House of Lies is a good show for anybody who hasn't seen about like the dark side of consulting. Um, of course, it's a show, so it's exaggerated. There's a lot of hyperbole there. Um, but uh, when you're brought in as a consultant and a client already has already the recommendation that they want and they're just bringing you in as, as consulting firms to just confirm what they already want. And so suddenly you have to like back engineer the analysis and the numbers in order to give the client exactly what they need. Uh, which may or may not be very far from objective recommendations, it puts a dent into the beauty of this industry because there's something nice about consulting, which means you come in outside and you look at a business, you come in with the recommendations. Impartial. And then, you know, before the official steer call, you sit down with the client who brought who brought you in and is paying for your fees. And you're like, this is our objective recommendation. He's like, that's not what I'm bringing you in here for. Like, I have a different recommendation that I need you guys to, like, get to. And, like, you scramble to, like... Still find, because you can create an analysis using numbers for any recommendation, uh, assuming it's not totally off the charts. But like, you know, same data, just sample it in different ways, cluster it in different ways, create different cohorts, and you can come up with different, totally different conclusions. I I thought that took away what would be ideally a great thing in consulting, which is to come in, give an objective view, take it or leave it. This is our view. That's not how the industry operates. Um, You have to give the client sometimes what they want. And sometimes what they want is not what is the most objective based on the data. And that's data, man. Like, it's the yeah. data is there. And like, so that's one thing I hated about this industry. But I think this is the case with anything that's corporate, right? Sometimes you have to make some concessions in order to, you know, generate business and grow. Um, but it's unfortunate because consulting is, is a good good industry. Um, you, you learn a lot and it yeah. can bring a lot of impact, right? Yeah. I think, and this is, I mean, the challenge is, in consulting, I find on some level very relatable to the challenges we're facing as human beings, mm. right? You have, you have a responsibility 
to yourself. And if you're a leader in an organization, then a responsibility to the organization to always be asking the difficult questions mm. and to always be making the difficult calls. Yeah. Right? If you don't make a difficult call, there are going to be consequences on that, right? But, and even on a personal level, right? Like being able to look at a situation and say, what is going to be the negative consequence of this? I know it's going to cost me if I go down that road, right? But do I choose short-term gratification or over short-term pain but long-term results, Yeah. right? You have a responsibility to yourself to do that, Yeah. right? And I think where we lose our way as individuals or as leaders is when for whatever reason it is, Right? We either stop asking the questions or can't find whatever it is we need to make the right but difficult call. Yeah, absolutely, right? 100%. And, and actually, if you think about uh, the kind of consulting that happens a lot in the region uh, specifically, because as opposed to like in the US and in Europe and in more developed markets, like consulting is still seen as a service that you need as a client, as a company, in order to get to the right recommendation in the big ocean of answers that exist. Whereas here, you know, consulting is starting, not, not just starting, it has been and continues to be high value resources coming in to run operations based on what the client already wants. Um, yeah, so like a client will buy like 20 consultants a year just to like run the business as usual. If you are doing what you do and you truly believe um, in the purpose of what you're doing and you're open, right? We talked about like having an open mind. You're yeah. open to listening to other people's perspective on the same, on whatever topic it is you're addressing yeah. and um, willing to always evolve and improve what you're doing, then yeah. keep doing what you're doing, right? Fair enough. Shara, yeah. uh, thank you so much for coming. I, I want to wrap up because I think it's been about more than an hour and I want to make sure that we're conscious of listeners' time and we don't hijack it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to, before we wrap up, is there any, like, uh, back to coaching and, and, and all that, is there any book that you recommend, the podcast that you recommend? By the way, uh, Shara Abi uh, Asi is your LinkedIn. So yeah. B-C-H-A-R-A. B-E-C-H-A-R-A. space A-B-I space A-S-S-I. For anybody that's, like, looking into executive coaching, they can reach out on you on LinkedIn. Um, and do you, you want to, like, uh, I don't know if you have any particular books that you feel like we can leave some people with or podcasts or anything that you think help, you know, get them on the path towards self-introspection and awareness, that, that anything that has helped you that you think you could recommend as yeah. a wrap-up? Um, so many books come to mind. I wonder which... Uh, so... When I was trying to figure out, like, where do I go next in life, there was a book by Bill Burnett, who was involved with the Stanford School of Design called Designing Your Life. Mm -hmm. And it's about, like, how do you set up little experiments to figure out the path that you want to draw for yourself going forward? Um, when I was at my um, lowest point um, and really thinking about what is the purpose of all of this? One book that really helped me through was The Power of Now. Oh, yeah. Mike, uh, uh, what's the name? Um, what's the author's name? Do you remember? Yeah, I don't yeah, remember the sure. author's yeah. name, but yeah. uh, that, was a, that was a book that uh, had a real deep impact on me. 
Um, I think these are the two that are top of mind for me. In terms of podcasts, I'm not, I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts, but there is one person whom I really adore. Okay, who's that? That's Esther Perel. Esther Esther Perel. Esther Perel. She's a psychologist. She works a lot uh, with the relationships and with couples. Okay. uh, Sex, intimacy, trust, etc. And I love listening to her podcast. All right. Well, I'm going to start listening to to her. Uh, Haven't heard of her before, so definitely checking that out. Uh, Dude, thank you so much for coming. Uh, Cheers one more time for a great uh, friendship and a great session. And uh, to the next one. For sure. Thanks for having me.